0: so we're going to be in Jonah this morning. Jonah chapter 2 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a, if you want to open your Bibles, if you don't have one with you, there should be one in a seat back around you, and there should be a bookmark in Jonah, right to get you to Jonah. If there's not a bookmark, it's, uh, I think in the pew Bibles, it's, uh, or the seat back Bibles, I think it's like 770, something around there. Um, So we last left Jonah at the end of chapter 1. In verse 17 of chapter 1, it says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's a weird place to leave somebody. How did he get there, you might ask, if you weren't here with us last week? Good question. Let me tell you in a recap of chapter one. So we have Jonah, who is a prophet, one who speaks the word of God to people. Jonah is told by God, get up, go to Nineveh and preach a message of judgment and repentance. Call out the evil in that city. So Jonah gets up, as he was told. And he goes, as he was told, but he doesn't go to Nineveh. Literally, he goes in the most complete opposite direction that he possibly can. He goes down to Joppa and he hops on a ship to go to Tarshish, which is completely to the west, literally the entire opposite direction of where he is supposed to go. He is on a ship, and while on this ship, God sends a mighty wind that causes a mighty storm that just about tears this boat apart. The crew on the ship are freaking out. They start praying to every one of their different gods, but none of that works because they're praying to just random ideas. Nothing is fixing it. And eventually, over time, they figure out that it is Jonah who is the reason for this storm. It is Jonah who is the reason that this storm is happening. And so the crew asks Jonah, what do we have to do? How do we fix this? How do we make things better? And Jonah tells them, the only way that's going to happen is if you throw me overboard and let me die. The crew resist that at first. They try to work and and row their way out of the storm. They can't. And so eventually, reluctantly, they do what he asked them to do, and they throw him into the ocean or into the sea. And as they do that, the storm goes away. Everything goes calm, and Jonah is drowning. Jonah is succumbed to this consequence for his rebellion against God, which is death. And in the midst of his drowning, God sends a great fish to swallow Jonah up. And that's where we left him, swallowed up in the belly of a great fish. And so this morning, we're going to look at chapter 2 of Jonah, which is, consists almost entirely of a prayer that he prays while in the belly of this fish. And so in studying this prayer this morning, it is my hope that we will take from this prayer a desire to consider and evaluate our own prayer lives the words we pray, how we say, what we say, and, and even beyond that, our relationship with God and the truth and honesty in that relationship. Prayer is a great gift given to us by God and it is a privilege that the God of all existence who holds everything in his hands would want to have a conversation with us. James 5.16. James is a book of the Bible that seems like a really good one that we are going to study in a couple of weeks here. James 5.16 reminds us the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so as we look at prayer and talk about prayer this morning, I want us to consider how and why and what we say in prayer. So speaking of, let's pray together and then we will jump in to chapter two. So please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, to worship, and to celebrate you. God, we pray for um, Grace Place. We pray for the kids in Grace Place. We pray for the volunteers, that you would give them an extra dose of uh, energy, of patience, of fun, of joy, of love and compassion as they lead and sing and teach um, your truth to the kids of our church, Lord, that um, in the ways that they lead, in the ways that they interact with the children of this church, Lord, I pray that your love and compassion and and grace and mercy for those kids would be evident in the way that our volunteers lead and serve them. Lord, we pray that you would save um, each one of those kids at an early age, that they might walk for a very long time with you. God, as we gather this morning in the midst of our community, there is sickness and pain and injuries and hurt and suffering and a lot going on in a lot of different places. We are feeling the very physical, tangible effects of living in a fallen, broken world this morning. God, help us to uh, remember that these things are temporary, that you are in control of all things. And God, we ask that you would be the healer that you say that you are, the comfort that you say that you are, the be you in all the different ways and all the different names and all the different situations in which you reveal yourself to us in scripture. God, we need you to be you in the midst of our community um, these days, Lord, because there is a lot of hurt and suffering and and just exhaustion going on. God, as we open your word this morning, as I preach your word this morning, I, I pray that nothing comes from my lips that isn't from you, Lord. And As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to read through Jonah 2. It's pretty short. It's only nine, ten verses. Um, So we're going to read through Jonah 2, and then we'll go back and talk about it. So Jonah 2, starting starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of sheol i cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me all your waves and your billows passed over me then i said i am driven away from your sight yet i shall again look upon your holy temple the waters closed in over me to take my life the deep surrounded me weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up you brought my up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What I want to do this morning for this prayer is we're going to look at it um, in two ways, basically. What I want to do is first, I want to kind of look at this prayer virtually in a a nameless, faceless kind of way. I want to take it out of context. I know you're not supposed to take the Bible out of context. This is a thought exercise. I promise we'll bring it back into the context. But what I want to do is basically I I want to consider Jonah's prayer as if it was one of the psalms that like doesn't have a name, doesn't have context to it, right? Like it's just those psalms that we don't know anything about the author or where it's coming from. I want to kind of look at this prayer in that sort of way. And then we'll go back into again and consider the context of who we know Jonah to be, his situation. All of those things. So at first, I want to kind of set aside Jonah for a, for a bit, and then we'll come back and talk more about him uh, in regards to the prayer he prays. Okay, so um, so basically, uh, this so, this prayer gets broken into three sections. The bulk of it is verses one through six, where he talks about the things he has gone through in the past. It's all past tense, and it's the things he's experienced. And then you have verse seven, which is kind of a summary of verses one through six. And then you have verses eight and nine, which focus more on the current. And future. And so he speaks in verses one through six. He speaks about being stuck and in a bad way. He uses the word Sheol, which is the land of the dead, death, really. It's a lot of references in these first verses to water and drowning, which I know we just said we're taking apart the context, but he's talking about water and drowning because, you know, he's in the belly of a fish. We get it. So, verse two, he says, I was in distress. I called out to the Lord and he answered me. And Lord there in your Bibles is probably, it should be, L-O-R-D is all in caps. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that means the word is Yahweh. That is the personal name of God. That is the, the name of God that is so intimate, so uh, revealing of God's character and nature that the Israelites wouldn't even say that name out loud. They had to come up, they came up with a different word to say at that time. But that word is Yahweh, the personal, intimate, relational name for God, I called out to God. I called out to Yahweh and he answered me. I was in a mess. I was in a bad way. I needed help. So I called to God and he answered me. Even though I was near death, God heard my voice. There is nowhere we can go. There is nothing. There is no place. There is no situation in which we can cry out to God and, and that prayer is restricted by our situation because God is in control of all things. And then he turns and he says in verse 3, it's interesting because in verse 3, as he's talked about this distress that he is in, this bad way that he is in, Jonah finds himself and he says, he attributes all this situation to God. In verse 3, he says, for you cast me into the deep. But he doesn't talk about it in a negative way. He doesn't go on a tangent about God. You're the reason I'm suffering. He doesn't rebuke God. He merely states this casting into the deep, the billows and the sea and the floods, all of this, was from you. God, it is a means of discipline for these actions. God was in control, orchestrating all of these things. The writer Jonah uh, embraces that. In verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I'm separated from you, God. I've been separated from you, but not forever. I will once again be in relationship with you. And possibly when he says holy temple, he might literally be talking about getting to Jerusalem, being able to see the temple. He has experienced great despair and suffering, but has been rescued. And in that rescuing, it produces a hope in his life, a hope for a future. He saw the troubles that he was in as being temporary and not forever. You get into verses 5 and 6, and again, he speaks about things... Closing in on him, being wrapped in the weeds, being pulled down, bars closing in forever. And at the end of verse six, he acknowledges that all hope was lost. Everything was ruined, yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. Everything was all over. My life was lost, yet God, Yahweh, pulled me out of the pit. And that's basically verses one through six. It's a lot of I was in distress, these horrible things are happening, but God saved me up, God pulled me out. And then verse 7 is, like I said, basically a summary of verses 1 through 6. My life was fainting. I prayed to the Lord, and my prayers made their way to the presence of God, and he heard me. And then verses 8 and 9 kind of takes a turn and speaks more to the the current and future. He condemns those who worship idols in verse 8. Having experienced the tangible saving by God, it's a declaration of the vain efforts to pursue idols, to pursue anything other than Yahweh. And he pledges, in the end of, the, of the, uh, the prayer, he pledges with thanksgiving in his heart, thankful that he's alive, thankful he has been rescued. He pledges to sacrifice and worship God, for salvation belongs to the Lord. Throughout this prayer, there is an abundance of references or direct quotes of the Psalms. Almost the entire prayer is made up of somebody else's words. Verse 2 quotes, um, references Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6, and directly quotes Psalm 120. It also references Psalm 30, verse 3. Verse 3 references Psalm 42, verse 7. Verse 4, Psalm 31, 22. Verse 5, Psalm 69. Verse 8, Psalm 31, 6. Verse 9, Psalm 3. I mean, really, by all accounts, this is a textbook prayer, right? Literally, he is praying the words of Scripture back to God. That's a beautiful thing to do. When you're stuck in your prayer life, you don't know what to do. Take the words of God and pray them back to him. He likes to hear that. That's a great way to pray. It's a great way to to open things up. This is a great, I mean, this is a, a standard, literally textbook kind of prayer. I was in distress. I was in serious trouble. I called out to God and he heard and he rescued me. Those who don't know God are in trouble. I will trust in God for salvation comes from him. Amen, right? Like that is like, standard boiled like you could put that nameless faceless kind of psalm like put it at the end of psalms and you'd be like yeah that that tracks that fits with everything else i've ever read good job jonah right i mean it took like being swallowed by a giant fish but clearly you finally got your head on straight things are things are changing there's been a change in your heart right maybe maybe i want to look at this prayer and I want to talk about Jonah. Because if we take this prayer in context, I think we're going to see things maybe a little bit different. Now we know what came before this, right? Jonah's rebellion. He's tossed into the sea. The sailors do that reluctantly, but they toss him into the sea. He's praying this prayer from the inside of a great fish that God provided to save Jonah from death at sea. That was what was going to happen. Right verse 17 we already read it. He's in the belly of this fish for 3 days and 3 nights and he prayed. I assume he prayed and did and thought other things in the midst of this, but all we have is this one prayer. We don't know anything else that how those 3 days went. We don't really know anything about whether or not he was uncomfortable. We do know this has got to be the strangest place a prayer has ever been prayed from. And then like think about like just the the reality of the fact that it, At the end of this prayer, right, he he ends up on the shore. He ends up on dry land. Anybody ever microwaved fish? How long does that stink linger? Like, I don't think Jonah, like, I think Jonah just smelled like fish the rest of his life. There's no way he washed this off. Not a chance. He says in verse 2, he says, I called out in distress out of the belly of Sheol, and you heard my voice. Jonah responded to God's call to Nineveh with defiance and rebellion when he was in the midst of the storm he's on this ship he's in the midst this storm is hitting the the ship is about to break apart and what's jonah doing everyone else is freaking out everybody else is praying to whatever god they believe in jonah is asleep in the bottom of the ship he gets woken up and the captain says pray to your god pray that he might save us and he doesn't It's only when Jonah finds himself in a perilous situation that he cries out, in my distress, on death's door, that's when he finally actually prays. There's nothing bad or wrong about praying when you're in trouble. That's a good, common sense response. right? When Peter is walking on the water with Jesus, and he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he starts to sink, he immediately cries out, God, save me, and Jesus is there to save him. The prayer of God help is a good, succinct, important prayer to pray when it is done in honesty and truth. In verse 3, Jonah addresses what got him into the water in the first place. And he knew that though it was the hands of the sailors that actually threw him overboard, it really was the will of God that sent him swimming. Jonah had conceded in chapter 1 that he wasn't going to outrun the justice of God and that he was condemned to death. That's that's what he tells these sailors. You're going to need to throw me overboard. At that point, Jonah believes he's dead. The sea and billows were controlled by God as instruments of God's judgment being carried out on him. Just as he had said on the boat, God made the land and the sea, and he acknowledges the waves and billows that passed over him belong to God. God is in control of that whole situation, including the judgment that Jonah faced. He continues this, woe is me, Look at what I've suffered through idea in verse 4. He says, I am driven away from your sight. Driven, that word is banished, sent away, expelled, removed. It is doing an action to someone else. Jonah claims he was banished from God's sight. But what do we know from chapter 1? What was he trying to do twice in the opening verses of chapter 1? He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish so that he paid a fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish to get away from the presence of the Lord. Twice in chapter, in verse 2 and 3, he says he is trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. And then he tells that to the sailors later on. This is why I'm on this ship. I'm trying to run away from God. Jonah was trying to distance himself from God. That was the goal and aim in getting on the ship in the first place. But now here he speaks as though God drove him away. That's not the case. See, when we feel far from God, when we cry out, God, where are you? Why have you gone away so far from me? It's not because he moved from us. It's because we moved away from him. Jonah feels distant and disconnected because he he chose to be distant and disconnected. And that disconnection is at its peak as he sinks into the waves, feeling the full weight of his rebellion and the consequences of it. But now, in the belly of the fish, Jonah believes there's hope. He didn't die. He doesn't know what's coming next, but he believes that there's hope, that maybe he will look upon the temple again. Maybe he'll get out of this situation. Maybe he'll be able to survive this and endure, and everything is going to work itself out. Jonah experienced the mercy of God through that fish, and it gives him hope, as it should. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, it should drive us to hope. It drives us to know that something better can be coming. In verse 6, it says, Everything is is falling apart. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land. The bars closed around me. I I was in the pits. He thought everything was over. He had accepted his fate of death for his rebellion and rejection of God's instruction. The water closed in on him. He was sinking. His life was slipping from him, but God brought him up out of the pit. As I said before, verse 7 is kind of a summary of verses 1 through 6. And there's two things, as we consider verse 7, there's two things I want us to think about in relation to this verse. As we consider everything up to this point, Jonah was told to go, he does the opposite. He ignores God. He asks the sailors to kill him, basically, because he, he knows he can't escape God's judgment. He almost dies. He gets swallowed up into this fish. And in doing so, he believes in some fashion That this won't be the end. Though he has no assurance of that, he believes that something else is coming. With all of that said, with all of the, the craziness of his experience, where's the remorse? Where's the heartache over his sin and rebellion? Where's the confession? Where's the apology? At what point does Jonah take responsibility for his actions? Take responsibility for the reason he's in this belly of this fish. He's in distress. He's in the belly of Sheol. Waves passing over him. Weeds wrapped around his head. All of that is happening. Why? Because of his own sin. And when he experiences the grace and mercy of God in the form of this fish saving him from drowning, there is no acknowledgement over the decisions that led to all of this. If we just briefly, you don't have to turn there, but if we just briefly compare this prayer of Jonah to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is written by David. If I got a bunch of you together, if you have any kind of Bible church background, and we did like family feud style, and I said, what are the top things related to David that you can think of? The most common answers are going to be he was a shepherd, he was a king, he killed a giant, and also he's an adulterous murderer. Right, like David is known for like the best of the best, and then his like worst decisions ever is that he sees this beautiful woman, he takes her, he has sex with her, she gets pregnant, and so instead of coming clean and admitting what he has done, he sends her husband to the front lines of a battle, has him killed, and then takes her as his wife. And once all of that comes out, once all the truth is laid bare about what he has done, he writes Psalm fifty one. In Psalm 51, I want to read a few verses of it. Like I said, you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Have mercy on me. Wash me clean. I have sinned against you. He goes on in that psalm and he says, God continues to ask God for forgiveness, for cleansing, for purging, asking for a clean heart. Psalm 51 is the prayer of a man who is aware of his sin. He is brokenhearted about what he has done, and he wants to repent and change and be in right relationship with God once again. Jonah's prayer in Jonah 2 is devoid of any of these things. Rather, and here's the second point I want us to think about in regards to verse 7 and this prayer in general, is that this prayer is really focused exclusively almost on Jonah. I was in distress. I was in the belly of Sheol. I was cast into the deep, into the seas. Waves passed over me. I was driven away from God's sight. I'm in a bad way. Oh, woe is me. Look at how bad it was for me, how much I suffered. Look how much I endured. And then, verse 7, this summary verse, I think it really does truly summarize Jonah and his situation, at least in his own head. My life was fainting away. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. My life was fainting. I was in trouble. I was dying. Then according to Jonah, how do things get fixed? What does he say in verse 7? When my life was fainting away, what are the next two words? I remembered. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. I was in a bad way, then I did something about it. I remembered, I acknowledged, and it was my prayer that rose up to God to cause him to save me. Jonah's whole prayer up to this point has been about himself and all the things he went through with no acknowledgement of his own sin. And then he says, and then I fixed it. This is now three weeks in a row that I get the chance to reference what I think are some of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is not something to be won, earned, or achieved. It is the grace and mercy of God through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we might be saved. The only thing we contribute to the equation is the sin that necessitated Jesus' sacrifice. Jonah's salvation is really similar. The only thing he added to the equation was his rebellion from the will of God that caused him needing to be saved in the form of this fish. The difference is for those who understand the reality that our salvation is outside of our control can boast and celebrate in the work of God on our behalf. Jonah instead decides to say it was his prayers that led God to save him. Not only is he lacking in remorse and and, and repentance, but he still can't see how he is literally dependent on the grace and mercy of God on his behalf. His heart has not changed. He was told to go to Nineveh and he didn't want to go. Why? Because he didn't want God to save those people because they were his enemies. His heart is still hard to God's grace and mercy. How do we know? Look at verse eight. He turns the prayer and he says, "Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love." Who do we know in already in these first two chapters? Who do we know that has some kind of connection and relationship to idols? The sailors that were on the ship with him. When the storm hits, they all give way to praying for their own gods, praying to their own gods. But the difference is, they had a change of heart. When they were introduced to Jonah's God, to the one true God, they prayed to him before they threw Jonah overboard. They asked for forgiveness for what they were about to do. And they prayed and worshipped and sacrificed to him after the storm broke, right there on the ship. They actually changed their ways. They make vows. They make decisions to change their lives moving forward. They had hearts changed. They actually responded to God moving in their lives. Jonah has the nerve to compare himself and to try and condemn them in verse 8. In actuality, it was those idol worshipers that he was on the boat with who have proven themselves to be more humble and responsive to the will of God than God's own prophet. The sailors actually prayed and worshipped and sacrificed when faced with the opportunity. In verse 9, Jonah says, With a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. He promises he will worship, he will sacrifice in the future. What's stopping him from worshiping and sacrificing in the belly of the whale? Even in his prayers and vows, Jonah makes it about himself and what he will do. Jonah makes this prayer about himself, even grammatically speaking, he does this. And I don't do this very often, but I think it's important here. I said in, in verse 2, Jonah prays the words of the Psalms, and he prays Psalm 120. In Psalm 120, in the Hebrew, in the way it was originally written, in Psalm 120, the word order, because word order is different in Hebrew than it is in English. The word order in Psalm 120 is literally, to the Lord, my distress, in my distress, I called out. In Jonah 2.2, as he quotes that same Psalm, he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord. Do you see how he flips it? Who's the subject? Who's the focus of the prayer? Jonah takes the words of God. He takes the words of David, and he flips it to make himself the focus. Even in quoting scripture, he's trying to take the focus away from Yahweh and make it about himself. He does the same thing in verse 9, when he closes out the prayer. He quotes Psalm 3, verse 8. And again, the word order in Hebrew is Yehovah Yeshua, belongs to the Lord's salvation. In Jonah 2.9, he says, Yeshua Yeshua. Yehovah, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's subtle, it's slight, but Jesus takes the back seat. God takes the back seat. It's a slight shift. But Jonah's prayer, at first, when we read it, and you look at it from afar, it seems it's holy, and it's real and full of biblical language. But it's lacking. It's lacking heart. If we go back to, to David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, He reminds us in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Jonah promises sacrifice and worship, and he vows he's going to do these things. But God's desire for his people is not what are we going to do, not promises and wishes and hopes and dreams. It's not even in the execution of sacrifices and activities. What God wants and desires is a broken and contrite heart, a realization that, yes, we have sinned, an admission of our fault, and a humble desire to turn to him in repentance. God wants us to come to him, to ask for forgiveness, to seek after him, to trust him enough to know that we can come to him. And if we do so in humility and honesty, he will hear our prayers, know our hearts, and shower us in his grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. Yes, there are consequences to our action, but we don't have to worry about being condemned by God or punished a second time for those sins because if our faith is in Christ, he paid the punishment. It's already done and over. God's saying, Come and find forgiveness here. Salvation does belong to the Lord. Jonah's right. We do find our hope and forgiveness and saving in the grace and mercy of God when we pursue him in a real and honest way. Jonah's heart is not contrite. His heart has not been changed. And we know that as we're going to continue our study. Spoiler alerts for the next chapter. In chapter 3, Jonah does go to Nineveh. God tries it again. He says, one more time, arise, go to Nineveh, preach to them about the evil that I have seen. And Nineveh, and this time Jonah says, okay, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches, but he does it half-heartedly. And even afterwards, when God shows compassion to the people, when they hear God's word and they turn, Jonah gets angry that God did as he pleased and that God showed compassion to his enemies. He's still full of anger towards these people. He still can't understand the height and width and depth and length of the grace of God, grace that he himself experienced. This prayer of Jonah, though, is not unique to him. Sadly, there are many who spend a lot of time in churches, a lot of time in Bible studies. They know the words to say, the phrases to use. They can make themselves sound really mature and genuine. It's the prayer that looks good. It's the prayer that seems to be holy from afar, but in reality, it's missing depth and compassion and humility. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story of two men, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And he says they both go into the synagogue to pray. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, making a show of it, he prayed and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. God, thank you I'm not a scumbag. Thank you that you have made me to show up on church every Sunday to teach Bible studies, to be a pillar in my community, to be kind and to be thoughtful and to be helpful. Thank you that you have made me a good person and that I am one. But the tax collector in the corner, not drawing any attention to himself, doesn't even want to turn his gaze toward heaven, is in the corner beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, of the two men, that's the one who leaves the synagogue justified. That's the prayer of the humble and contrite heart. Jonah's prayer is the manifestation of what Jesus says when he talks to the Pharisees at one point. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Outwardly appearing beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. For some of us, we grew up in church, and we hear the Bible read, and we read the Bible ourselves, we memorize some verses, and we learn the lingo, and we know how to make a Christian prayer mad-lib so that we seem impressive. And somehow, you do that enough times, and over time, even in your own private life, in your own in your own head, you convince yourself that I have a strong, vibrant relationship with God because I know the things to say, but all we've done is put together a bunch of words lacking any heart and real connection to God. It's lazy, and it's fake. And so many people are willing to coast by on that, convincing themselves their faith and relationship with God is strong, but in reality, it's as deep as a puddle on the sidewalk. And you know what God's reaction to that kind of prayer life is? Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The fish didn't vomit it. God made him. The fish didn't spit out Jonah. The fish didn't open its mouth and let Jonah just walk on out. It vomited him out. What a sight that must have been for anybody that was out fishing that day. Right? This giant fish. In my head, I've tried to get away from whale. In my head, it's a giant catfish. what What a vision. This monster of a fish shows up and vomits out a human grown man. If anybody else saw that that day, how do you tell that story and get believed? Proverbs 23, verse 6 says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not eat the bread of the selfish. Do not partake in what he has to offer you. It will make you vomit. That's Jonah and his prayer in the belly of this fish. But here's the amazing thing. God doesn't write Jonah off. We don't end with chapter 2. There's a chapter 3 and a chapter 4. He doesn't treat Jonah like a lost cause like Jonah does in verse 8 when he's talking about the sailors and really in his heart talking about Nineveh, seeing it as a lost cause. Jonah is flawed. I said it last week. I said it this week. I'll probably say it the next two weeks. Jonah is flawed. Jonah is bad at his job. He is selfish and rebellious. God uses him. God works through him. God works in spite of him. God is still glorified through Jonah, both in his rebellion and his saving of Jonah, and even in his begrudging obedience. Jonah is not perfect. We are not perfect. But God didn't give up on Jonah, and thanks be to God he hasn't given up on us. God will be glorified through you, and God wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to be in a relationship with you and I, not because we're all that special and important, but because that's who God is. God is love. God wants relationship with us because he made us and he knows us and he loves us. So let me ask you, what are your prayers like? Do you consider the words you are using to pray? Do you believe the words you are using to pray? Do you believe, have you put your faith in and been changed by the one that you are praying to? Prayer is a gift and a blessing from God to grow us and to help us connect and develop our relationship with him. A relationship that we did not earn, win, or work for, but one God has granted to us through his son and invites us to be part of. Do not neglect it. Do not ignore it or decide it's too hard. Cultivate it. Practice it. Show up on Friday night. We're going to have a group of people. We have this happening on Friday nights because we have people in our church who are excited and passionate about prayer. So let's do it together. Let's grow and learn. Engage with God because it doesn't matter how long or wordy or impressive your prayers are. If it is bound up in a humble and contrite heart, God hears and welcomes those prayers. Even when we don't have the words, right? Even when it's just a groan, if it's an honest and true groan, God hears that and welcomes that prayer. We cannot earn work or our way into a right relationship with God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. When we admit our need of a savior, when we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, in our place, and choose for him to be not only our savior, but the king of our lives, when we are humble enough, To come to him and admit our need for him, that's when the relationship can grow, when we are genuine and humble before God. When that's the place you're coming from, he hears and welcomes and engages in a real honest conversation with us. So don't try to put on a show. Don't try and show up and, and impress him with how fancy your lingo can be. Just show up and speak. He wants to hear from you. He wants to speak with you as well. And as we heard again in this morning's memory verse, even when you show up without any words, God says, come, I understand. I understand you. I know the pain. I know the hurt. I know the suffering. Just come. Come and be with me and really, truly be in my presence. Come seek after me with honesty. And that is enough. Don't take a bunch of religious sounding words and regurgitate them back as if it's some kind of mystic incantation be thoughtful, be genuine, be honest and real and humble. God is calling you into a conversation, into a relationship with him. What are the words you're gonna use? Let's pray. God, you could have um, used any form of, to communicate your character, your will, your who you are to us. And you chose to use stories and and words and and the written word. We have your word recorded and protected and used and transcribed and and rewritten and, and maintained for us over the course of centuries. The words we choose to speak with you, they are important. Help us to be mindful of that. Help us when we pray, when we pray with others, and and when we pray by ourselves, Lord, help us to be intentional with the words we choose. And more than that, be intentional with our hearts. Gotta pray that we would be honest, that we would have this morning for some of us, maybe the first real honest conversation we with you that we've had in a long time, maybe ever. That we would come before you humble enough to say, God, I, I, I need you. That I need help. I can't get through this on my own. I'm I'm in a bad way. But I can't fix it and I need you to fix it. God, help us to be real and honest with you because you know us anyway. You know our rising and our sitting. You know the hairs on our heads. You know our hearts. You know everything. There's no fooling you. There's no pretending with you because you know. And even though you know all of that, you know all of the good and the bad and and everything in between, you still call us to have a relationship with you. You still call us and invite us to be welcomed into your family. God, the grace and mercy that is abounding in you is overwhelming. We don't have we don't have the words to, to truly adequately express gratitude for what Christ did on the cross. Our groanings will have to do. God, I pray that we would we would be honest with ourselves and with you. And where we stand with you, and what we believe, where we have put our faith and our hope. And God, as you call us to be the lights of the world, I pray that you would help us to shine brightly. Not so people can be impressed with how brightly we shine but so that people might come to know you that people might come to know the grace and mercy that you have available to them God we have fallen short every one of us has has sinned has has rebelled against you Now we thank you that you tell us that if we confess to you if we bring these things to you if we have that broken and contrite heart that humble heart that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we confess that we have rebelled against you and we ask that you would forgive us. Help us to live into the new life you have given us. Help us to live into the new life that your son paid for us and bought us through his death and resurrection. And in doing so, that we might shine brightly for you to point others to you so that they might know how good you are. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.